So let's go ahead and open up with a word of prayer. We're going to finish up our, hopefully we're going to finish tonight, our Christology 101 class. And, uh, so let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer. We'll get started. Okay? Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for this time together. I thank you for the privilege and the joy of being able to come before these folks and share your truth and your word with them. Lord, I need you to guide my um, thoughts, my mind, my eyes, my heart, and give me the strength and the willingness to proclaim your truth in such a way that the folks here in this room can grab it and grasp it. And Lord, we recognize that it's only through your Holy Spirit that I can teach it and they can hear it. So we ask you, Holy Spirit, to be with us tonight. Help us to understand what we're learning. Help us to appreciate it. Help us to wrestle with things that are tough for us to understand. Help us to uh, to uh, challenge one another uh, through the truth so that we can uh, uh, be conformed to the image of your Son, Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. So last time we were together, and the last four or five times we've been together, we've been talking about Christology 101. We said that Christology is the study of... Christ, all right, that's a very simple one. And the last time we were together, we spoke about the scope and the efficacy of the work of Christ as our mediator. The scope and efficacy of Christ as our mediator. What do we say the scope was? Does anybody remember? What is the scope of Christ's mediatorial work? The view or what his aim is, right? His aim. What was Christ, what was his intentions? When he entered, when he is the mediator, when he comes and died on the cross, what were his intentions? What was his aim, right? And and so we want to look at this Hebrews passage tonight, Hebrews chapter ten. I have a lot that we want to try to get through tonight. I hope that we can. We'll see, Lord willing, we can. Hebrews chapter ten, and let's look at starting in verse. Uh, we'll start in verse one. Let's start in verse one. It says, for the law, since it only has a shadow of the good things to come and cannot, and not the very form of the things, can never, never, the law can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year after year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, because the worshippers having once been cleansed would no longer have a consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sin year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Alright, so what is he saying? The law. The book of Leviticus is a part of Moses' law and the book of Leviticus tells them how to present their sacrifices. And year after year after year the high priest would go into the holy place and offer sacrifice on the uh, Ark of the Covenant, right? He would offer the blood on the, the, the Ark. And it was a way for the people of Israel to be made atone at one with God again. And they had to do it every year. Why did they have to do it every year? Because the key people kept sinning. And not only that, but that blood from that bull was not actually cleansing their sin. We're going to learn tonight what was actually cleansing their sin. The Old Testament saints got their sins cleared too. Their sins were cleansed as well, and we'll see that tonight in our study. But what it's saying is, if this was a, if this sacrifice was good, if it was pleasing to God, and if it could actually take away sins, then they wouldn't have had to keep going back every year and doing it over and over and over and over and over again. If also, if you notice, remember when Jesus said, "It is finished." What happened to the veil in the temple? It ripped, and it ripped from top to bottom. It didn't rip from the bottom up. It ripped from the top down. 
and it ripped wide open and that exposed the Holy of the Holies where everybody could see in there. See? That word that they used in the Bible that said it ripped from top to bottom is a Greek word that means anathem. It means from upwards down. And right in the same way that uh, it said uh, uh, no man uh, ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. Right? It said you must be born from above. Y'all remember that verse in John? You must be born from above. That word above, the proper process of being born from above is that same word that they use to describe that veil being ripped from the top down. What's the significance of that? Our salvation comes from God. It was God who ripped that veil in half and said, No more blood of bulls and goats. Right? What did the Jews do? They sewed the veil right back up and went right back in their old system again. Therefore, one of the apostles, we think Paul, had to write the epistle to Hebrews, said you can't go back to that system. You can't go back to that. If you do that, what you're admitting is is that Christ's work on the cross was not sufficient. Now look what it says next in verse uh, 5. Therefore, when He comes into the world, who? Jesus. Jesus. He says, Sacrifices and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. Alright, now... This writer is quoting the book of Psalms and my Lord is saying to his Lord, you have prepared a body for me. Who's talking? Jesus is talking to who? His father and David, his great granddaddy is writing that into Psalms as a way for us to hear the the inner conversation of the Trinity, right? Uh, sacrifice offer you have not desired a body you have prepared for me and whole burnt offerings and sacrifice for sin you have taken no pleasure then I said behold look at this in the scroll of the book it is written me to do your will O God I come in the volume of the book right it's all about Jesus and it says this after saying sacrifice and offerings and burnt offerings and sacrifice for sin you have not desired nor have you taken pleasure in them which are offered according to the law then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. Alright, why did Jesus come to earth? To do whose will? His Father's will. I come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to the establish the second. Alright? By this will, we, who is we? All believers. Alright? By this will, by the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. All right, now, a lot of people believe that Jesus died to save every single person in the world. And they say, see, it says once for all. He died once for all. But remember what we had just been talking about. We had been talking about the blood of what? Bulls and goats. And how often did they have to do that? All the time. Every day they were sacrificing, right? Blood, blood, blood. Every day. What this once and for all is saying is Jesus' sacrifice was a once for all time sacrifice. There was no need for any more. You see how that works? Yep. It says every priest stands daily ministering and offering uh, time after time sin for, uh, sacrifice for sin, which can never take them away. But He, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, see there's that for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Why did He sit down? He was done. It is finished. Right? Same way... When uh, on the uh, after creation, what did he say? It is finished. I've, I've done it, right? And then on the seventh day, what did he do? He rested. Why? Because he was he got tired? No, he finished it. And then when Jesus died on the cross, he said, "It is finished. It has been completed. The work has been done." 
Now what we need to understand is, look at that verse again. It says, by His this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now what you need to understand, what I need to understand, what we need to understand that the Bible teaches, when we talk about the redemptive narrative, that's another fancy term we used last time we were together. What is a narrative? Story. Story. And what is redemption? That's the price paid to purchase something. Alright? So the entirety of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is known as the redemptive narrative. The plan started when he said, let there be light, or actually it started before he ever said that. It started before the creation of the world. The plan was already in place, and as you read your Bible, you're watching that plan unfold all the way from Genesis to where? Revelation. The plan of salvation unfolds before our eyes. It's called the redemptive narrative. Now here's another fancy term for you to put in your watch pocket, and it's this. Uh, It's called the analogy of faith. The analogy of faith. And what that means is the entire story from Genesis to Revelation is one smooth, yet complex, yet simple, yet beautiful, yet awe-inspiring story with no contradictions and no error. The analogy of faith means that the entirety of the Bible tells one story of God and His gift of salvation to us. The analogy of faith. And so when we make these analogies from the Old Testament and New Testament, we need to understand if there's a contradiction in the story, it's in our understanding, not in the story. Okay? If there's a contradiction, it's not in the story, it's in our understanding of the story. And so what it's saying is by this one sacrifice, by, by this His will, by God's will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, to be sanctified, what does that mean, to be sanctified? Anybody know? What does it mean to be sanctified? Okay, it means the process of sanctification definitely is the process of us being conformed to the image of Christ. But the term sanctified means set apart. So when God reaches down to this fallen, broken world and grabs one of his sheep and says, nope, I love you too much to keep letting you live like that, he is sanctifying you. He is setting you apart from the rest of the world. Amen. All right? So when was the sanctification accomplished? Look what it says again in verse, uh, by his will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. What does it mean? When Jesus was dying on the cross, He was dying to save all of those that were going to be sanctified. He's the good shepherd. He lays his life down for the sheep. All right. Now, if He is the good shepherd, if He is God, how many sheep will He lose? None. If He loses somebody, He's not the good shepherd. You see how that works? So as Jesus was dying on the cross, He was setting up people apart for Himself. And the beauty of that is is that He had you on His mind. If you're in this room today and you are a blood-bought believer, you are a regenerative child of God, you are His child and you know it, it's because on the cross He sanctified you. Not only did He sanctify you on the cross, but before the foundation of the world He knew you. Like, So when you read from Genesis to Revelation, before you even read God said let there be light, God already knew who you are. And he knew who you were, 
and you were His because He knew you. Now, how many people does God know? God knows all the creation. God every knows every molecule and atom and, and particle in the whole world, right? You know, one old theologian said there's not one radical molecule in the whole universe. Not one molecule of oxygen that is outside of God's control. He's God, okay? And so the beauty of that is He knows everything. But when it says that He knew you, it is a spiritual knowledge. Not, it's not that He knew what you would do or not that He knew who you were, but He knows you. It's the same word that the Bible uses. Now, now in, the, in the Old Testament in Genesis, in, when it talks about Adam knowing his wife, there's a, there's a carnal knowledge there. There's like a, a physical knowledge there that's only to be in place between a husband and a wife, right? But that word know is the word yada in Hebrew. Y'all ever had a friend say yada yada? Mm-hmm. Right? Well, what they're saying, even though they probably don't know it, is they're saying, I know, I know. So you're trying to say something and they go yada yada. Right? Whatever, whatever. But the term yada means knowledge. No, I know. I know. And so when it says that God knows you, it means there's an intimate and personal relationship between you. He created you and set you apart. He knows you in a special way. You're his sheep. Right? And he laid down his life for you. So he knows you. So by this one set, uh, sacrifice, he is sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. Now, what do we call it when we make an offering? Who is it that makes the offerings? Who is it that makes the sacrifices in the Bible? The priest. And we know that Jesus is the high priest. So not only is he your high priest who makes the sacrifice for you, but he's also the sacrifice too. So when you go through the Old Testament, you read about all these priests, they all point us to the real high priest who is Jesus. When we see all of these sacrifices, remember and, and uh, when the children of Israel were getting delivered and the Passover lamb was sacrificed, right? And they said, don't break any of his bones, right? Well, well, that was a picture of Jesus. Remember when he was on the cross, they didn't break his bones, did they? Remember that? They broke the legs of the, the other two guys that was winning so that they would go ahead and die, but they didn't need to break Jesus' bones because he was already dead. And so he is our he is our Passover lamb. Paul he actually uses those exact words. And I think one of the Corinthians passages, he says he is our Passover. Jesus is our Passover. And so the reality is, is this plan has been in place all along. Jesus is our priest. Jesus is our prophet. And what was the one other role that Jesus played for us we talked about last time? Handles Messiah, King of Kings. King, King. yeah, he's our king, right? And so not only is he our prophet, not only our priest, but he is our king. And who is he king of? He's actually, he rules in domain over everyone, right? But he's the king of his people. He's the king of his kingdom. And his kingdom lasts for how long? Forever. It's an eternal kingdom. So, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice... He offered to God through the eternal spirit. The Lord Jesus has fully satisfied the justice of God. We talked about that last time we were together. What does it mean to say he fully fully satisfied the justice of God? What does it mean to satisfy the justice? All right. Do you get arrested? And or let's not let's don't get arrested. Let's just get a speeding ticket. And you go to court and the judge says that fine will be two hundred and fifty dollars. How do you satisfy that justice? Yeah, you pay the, the ticket. And if you don't pay the ticket, they'll throw you in jail, right? And you'll probably have to stay 30 days there, and they'll let you go again. Why do they let you go after 30 days? Because you've satisfied the justice. You see, it, there's no more charges anymore. The charges have not been dropped. They've been paid. 
Huh? Paid in full. Yeah. And that's what Jesus said on the cross. The translation, it is finished, is the word tetelestai. And what it means is paid in full. There it is. Yeah. Yep. It's paid in full. It's done. It is finished. There's nothing left to pay. So how many of your sins did Jesus have to pay for on the cross? All, All of, them. of them. The ones you committed yesterday, the ones you committed today, and the ones you committed tomorrow. The writer of the book of Hebrews warned us about trampling underfoot the blood of Christ. What does it mean to trample under the foot the blood of Christ? It means that He shed His blood for you, and then if you go walking in sin over the top of His blood, you're disregarding it. Right? Think about that. What's cool about that? Where did they put the blood on the doorpost before they got out of Egypt? On the top and the sides, but not on the bottom. Why? Because we don't step over the blood. You see? Yeah, that works. It's really cool to think about that, but that's a really neat thing. So, he fully satisfied the justice of God. He obtained reconciliation, and he purchased an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for everyone who the Father had given to Jesus. Now, we talked about that last time together. Remember, we went to the book of John, and it said, so let's go there, because I want to remind you, go turn back with me to John 17. Let's look at John 17 really quick at the high priestly prayer. All right. Now, what does it mean to say the high priestly prayer? How, what role is Jesus playing when he's in the high priestly prayer? The high he's interceding for us as our priest, right? So what does the priest do? Prays, and who's he praying to? The Father. Is there anything that Jesus has ever prayed to the Father that the Father did not answer? No. No. So, this intercession right here is not only for, we're, it's going to see in a minute, not only for these, but all of those that will believe because of what you said. So watch what it says. John 17, verse 1. Jesus spoke these things, lifting up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. All right, so who is he praying? What is he saying to the Father? Father, all of those that you gave to me, <coughs> let me give them eternal life. Know what it says next. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ who you sent. So what is eternal life? To know Christ and to know the Father. How do we get to know the Father? Through the Son. What did Jesus say? You've seen, how can you say to me you've not seen the Father? You've seen me, you've seen the Father. Right? Okay. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory that I had with you before time was, before uh, the world was. All right? Now, what's cool about that is we, we talked about this last time we were together. In the book of Isaiah, there's a passage that says, Yahweh will not share his glory with anyone. All right? I think it's Isaiah, somewhere between Isaiah 40 and 48. It's a challenge to all the false gods, that whole passage 40 to 48 and in that he says I will not share my glory with anyone and what does Jesus just say let me have back the glory I had with you before the world see because the father and the son are one they're one being two persons right father son holy spirit three persons one being right now he says this I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world they were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. 
For the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. Now look what it says there. For they have received the words, and they have believed that you sent me. That's always the process. In John 1 it says this, To all of those who received him, to those who believed on his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. So what is the process? We first receive, then we believe. It's never believe and then you receive. Many of you in this room have been taught that it was your free will choice that you uh, you received Jesus, or you believe Jesus, and because you believe Jesus, you receive Jesus. But the Scriptures are very adamant to tell us, no, 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 you must be born again, right? Nobody chooses to be born. Jesus, in the same way that He blew breath into Adam's nostrils, had to blow breath into your nose. Why? Because you were dead in trespassing and sin. You were dead. And in order to have life, you have to have breath. And who is it that gives you the CPR? The Holy Spirit. Once you receive Him, then you believe Him. To all of those that received Him, to all of those that believed on His name, He gives them the right to become children of God. Alright? So look what He says again in verse uh, 8. The words you gave me, I give to them. They received them. And you understood that I came forth for you. And they believe that you sent me. Now remember, Jesus is a prophet. Right now he's praying as a priest, and he is the king. But look, what he, he, at praying as priest, you know what he said? I gave them your word. What does that make him? Someone who speaks for God. Yes. Prophet. I gave them your word, so he's the prophet. And what did they do? They received them, and because they received the words, they believed them. Right, now watch what he says next. I ask on their behalf. Who is he praying for? The ones who receive him, the ones that believe him. But watch the next thing. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Who is Jesus interceding for? His people. Who's he interceding for? All of the ones that the Father has given to him. He's the high priest of his people. And that prayer applies to every single one of them. But I want you to notice what he said. Watch what he says. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have glorified I have been glorified in them. Alright? Verse 12, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Who's the son of perdition that got lost? Judas. Remember that the Bible only calls the devil and Judas a son of perdition. Those are the only two people in all the scripture to get that label. But So he's talking about his apostles there, and what did he say? I kept all of them. I kept every one of them. But now I come to you and I make these things. I speak in the world so that they may have joy. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world but for you to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of the world. 
Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you send me in the world, I have sent them. For their sake I sanctify myself, that they may they may also be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone. So watch what he's saying. Father, I'm not asking just for the twelve disciples or eleven disciples uh, alone, but for also all of those who believe on me through their word. If you're in this room today, the reason you are a believer is because the disciples went out and did what they were told to do. They went out and proclaimed the gospel, and that tree, that spiritual tree has been growing ever since, right? And the reason you're a believer is because these apostles went out and did what they were commanded to do. And not only that, but Jesus, your high priest, was praying for them that the message would get to you one day. Isn't that really cool to think about? Yeah. And, and and is God going to on the last day go, oh man, there's old Bobby and he sat over there in the corner and I never got around to getting the word to him. No. Yeah. No, no, he's going. Listen, he is not going to come back. He's not going to return until the last sheep comes into the fold. When his spirit reaches that last heart and converts and regenerates that heart and they receive him and believe him, he's coming back for his people. And there's not a single one of them going to be lost. Why? Because he's the good shepherd. He don't lose sheep. Now, do do his sheep get lost? Yeah, but not to him. He allows them to wander astray so that they'll realize they need to trust the shepherd little story for you. Y'all may have already heard this. Did you know that sheep do have a tendency to roam and wander? And one of the, y'all heard the, the method that the, the shepherds used to keep them from roaming off? They'll take the little sheep and they'll put them in their lap and they'll put one of their legs on their leg like this and break their leg. And then they will carry that sheep around until that leg heals. They'll carry And once that leg heals, and he puts it down, guess what that sheep does? The sheep had been so used to being in the shepherd's arm that he doesn't roam anymore. It is brutal. But I guarantee you that God let some of y'all get out and get your heads kicked in too, didn't he? Right? Why? Because once you cut once you see yourself from your from his point of view, once his Holy Spirit opens your eyes to what a vile and wicked person you really are. And how far away from him you truly were. You don't want to roam anymore. Right? He's a good shepherd. Amen. He knows how to take care of his sheep. He knows how to bring us back in. He knows how to take care of us. All right. So with that done, um, I've got two more paragraphs we want to try to get through in the next 20 minutes. Um, and the, what, this next paragraph is going to be a struggle because many of us in this room have been taught that. Uh, I know at one time in my life I was taught that the Old Testament saints were saved by works of the law. Has any of y'all ever heard that before? They had to do works of the law to be saved? Alright, well, let's look at this. Jesus is also the Savior of all of the Old Testament saints. What is an Old Testament saint? What does the word saint mean? Christ follower? Huh? It means a holy one. A sanctified one, one who has been set apart for him. All right? So what we need to understand is how long has, has the redemptive narrative been going? Since the beginning. Since the beginning. So is Adam and Eve saints? Yes. 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 Moses? Yes. Noah? Yes. Saul? Probably no. not. Judas? Nope. 
Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, and Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, and Haggai, and Malachi. Yep. Yeah, they're saints. You see how that works? And that has been going on from Genesis to Revelation. The story is. And so if you're in this room today, you truly are a child of God, you're a saint. You were set apart. All right? But we need to understand. So there, there's a rapper, his name's Shylin. He's a pastor out of Virginia. And I, I'm not even going to try to rap what he says, but the gist behind it is this. The Old Testament saints were saved on credit. We are saved on debit. All right? What is a debit card? It's a, it's a card you have and you use it and you go and you buy stuff, right? If you got $500 in your account and uh, and it costs $300, you give them the card, it takes $300 out, now you have $200 left on your debit. All right? If it costs 501 and you have 500, it says insufficient funds, card decline, right? If you if you're trying to get, if you're trying to get some lunch and you only got $20 in your account and you try to pull a 20 out, and it says uh, it'll give you that 20 and then you bounce three things off of, down the road somewhere. But debit a debit card means there's got to be money in the account for it to work. Now, what's the difference in a debit card and a credit card? You got credit. Yeah, I'll pay that later. That's exactly right. And then they charge you 26% and you don't get it paid off to you at 65. All right? All right. The Old Testament saints were saved by faith just like the New Testament saints. If you do not believe that, you can turn to the book of Romans and look at the two people that Paul uses as examples of being justified by faith. Does anybody know just off the top of their head who are the two saints? Um, close. One of them's Abraham. Who's the other one? No, he's a king. David. David. Go to Romans 4 and look. He uses Abraham and David as two people who were saved by faith. They weren't saved by their circumcision. They weren't saved by keeping the law of Moses because David was a murderer and Abraham pimped his old lady off. All right? They were both unrighteous men. But they were saved because they put their trust in Christ. Now, objections. What would be an objection to that? How? What's the, what's the objection? Abraham and David put their faith in Christ, so they were saved by faith. People would object and say that there was not Christ. In yeah. Where was Jesus? Exactly. Huh? Exactly. He was after, but their faith was in something that he was going to do, and in that faith, they were saved on credit. Does that make sense? You're saved on debit. What does it mean? To tell us that it is finished, paid in, full. How much credit do you have? All of it. It's paid. But your faith is not in the payment. Your faith is in who paid it. You see how it works? You're looking back to the cross and what He did for you. What did He do? He paid it full. The people in the Old Testament are looking forward to the cross and in faith they believe that He was coming. All right? And now, i got to quickly go through and show you a couple of examples of that. All right? Um, number one, turn with me back to the book of Genesis. Really fast, guys. we got to go because we're going to run out of time. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Devil's, God's talking to the devil. And he says this. 
Genesis chapter 3, 15. I will put hatred, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the hill. What's he saying? He's saying, Eve, one day you're going to have a baby that's going to finally get that serpent. He's going to, your baby is going to have his heel stung by the serpent. But then he's going to use that same foot and crush his head with it. So what's happening there? Who's the serpent? And who who gets his heel bit by the serpent? When? When he's in the wilderness for 40 days. Nope. That's a good guess, though. That was a really good guess. Right? No, no. It was when he died on the cross. Oh, yeah. Right? He who knew no sin became for us that we might know the right. So what happened? All of that sin was injected in. It, it was poured on Jesus. The, the wrath for that sin was poured on Jesus. You see? All of that death was poured on Him. But then, He rose from the dead, and so what did He do? He took the serpent's power away from Him. The devil thought he finally got Him, but in death, He was actually destroying the devil. He was crushing his head. Alright, just another one really quick, right there, same place. Um, uh, verse 20. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living things. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Right? Well, why did they need garments of skin? Because they were naked and they were ashamed. Alright, where did garments of skin come from? Treat garments of skin. Animals. Alright? Does a lamb or a sheep or a cow just come up to you and say, hey, take a little off the side. You can make some shoes out of it. No. How do you get leather sandals? Huh? How do you get alligator skin boots? You got to kill the animal. And so what happens here is God sacrifices an animal and covers Adam and Eve's nakedness. Well, they it it actually established a sacrificial system. It's the first sacrifice in the Bible. But think about it. Why did he have to clothe them? Because they were naked. Why do you need clothing? Because you are unrighteous. You are naked. Right? And Christ clothes you in his righteousness, doesn't he? But the only way that he can clothe you in that righteousness, clothe you in that righteousness is if the animal dies first. Who's the animal? Jesus. He died. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might know the rights of Christ. So in his death, he now closes our he closes our insufficiency, and it's all right there in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter three. All right, really quick. Um, I hope some people from my church. Oh, by the way, y'all, please pray for me. Um, I, I so I've preached three times, uh, twice at this church now, and I'm preaching this Sunday. Um, last Monday, I sat through a two-hour interview with a panel of a pastor search committee, and they're I, I'm I'm really praying and hoping they're going to receive me as their by vocational back. Like, I'm going to be the pastor of this little Amen. church on Whitmarsh Island. Whitmarsh Island Baptist. So y'all pray for me about that. Cause, but anyhow, um, where was that? Oh, I hope none of them are listening right now because I'm going to spoil the sermon from this coming up Sunday. So I hope they're, they're not going to listen to this. But turn to Numbers chapter 21 really quick. Numbers chapter 21, uh, chapter 6. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. All right, so they're out in the wilderness. God sends snakes into the camp. The snakes start biting the people, and the people start what? Dying. Remember, they're out in the wilderness. It's a time of testing. Not only is God testing them to see if they will trust Him, 
But they are testing God. What does it mean when your grandma says, boy, you tested me? (coughs) That's not a good thing, is it? So is it a good thing that God tests us to see if we will trust Him? Yes. Is it a good thing for us to test God to see if we can get by it? No. And they're testing Him in the wilderness. So He sent these snakes and says this, So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that He may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Alright, so they come to Moses and say, We really messed up. We're sorry. Pray to God and ask Him to get these snakes out of here. Alright? Same thing that you would pray if you were wanting to get over an addiction. You're poisoned with an addiction, and you're praying to God, get these snakes out of here. All right? Get the snakes out of my head. Right? But the reality is, watch, because God's not going to take away the snakes. They pray and say, oh, get the snakes out of here, and He's not going to take away the snakes. Look what it says. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a standard, and it shall come about that anyone who is bitten when he looks, he will live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. So what does it mean? It means that Moses made a statue, a little uh, a brass snake, put it on a giant flagpole out of the middle of the camp, and he told him, if you get bit, look, and you will live. Faith. All right? It's faith. Now, I'm sure that someone got bit and said, that's stupid, I ain't looking over there. And they died, and they died right? Someone got bit and said, oh, I'll walk it off, I'm tough, I can handle this. They died. The only solution was to look and live. How do you know if they truly believe what God said? Because they would look. Right? All right, now, that's just a quick summation of that story. Now, watch this. I need you all to see this. He didn't take the snakes away. He gave them a cure for a snake bite. That's better. All right? If you had the choice of having... Uh, oh, God, take this cancer away from me. Or, oh, God, give me a cure where cancer will never come back ever again. You see the difference in those two? Right? So when God changes your heart, He will take the addiction away. Our problem, and one of the reasons that we constantly relapse, is because we're doing it on our willpower. Right? I'm strong and I can do this. Well, your willpower is the problem, not the solution. Your will is the problem, not the solution. Because you are going to do what you want to do. And unfortunately, as fallen human beings, we want to sin. Alright? So it's God that has to take away the snakes. But He don't take away the snakes. He gives us a cure for a snake bite. And so this is a beautiful story of God testing His people to see whether they will trust Him or not. And it's not a pleasant test. Right? But with that said... These are Old Testament saints, are they not? All right, now, remember this. This is the story of the servant in the wilderness. Now, I want to ask somebody something. You memorized all of the books of the Bible. Somebody tell me what the most famous verse in all of the Bible is. John 3.16. John 3.16. Can you say it? Sure. Yep. For God so loved one of me, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever shall believe in him shall not perish, but Amen. All right, now. How about I'll give you whatever money I have in my wallet right now. It's not much. I'm kind of a poor guy. If you can tell me what John 3.14 says. Uh, it's, more, it's very similar. It's more similar. Nope. All right, don't look. Maybe it's 3.18. All right, well, let's all go turn to John 3.14. Because we all know John 3.16, but how many of us don't know John 3.14? Turn to John 3.14 really quick and let's look at something there. 
What? What is he talking about Moses and snakes in the desert for? Yeah, John 3.14. Look at it, guys. Look what it says. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Right? So he's the gold serpent. Yes. And in order for us to... We've been poisoned. The snake that bit us is sin. The serpent. The devil. And we have that poison running through us. What does it look like when you're poisoned by a snake? Your leg swelled up and rots off, right? What does it look like when you're poisoned by the devil? Anger, wrath, envy, strife, jealousy, heresy, sedition, drunkenness, and carousing. That's what uh, serpent poison looks like in a human being. And if we know that that's in us, what do we got to do to survive? Look, and we will live. What do we look to? As Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes on Him will have everlasting life, you see? And so while I'm bringing this up, because in the Old Testament, that, that really happened. Like, that story really happened. But Christ, Jesus, was already at work in these people lives, showing them who He was. And if they had faith, they looked to that bronze serpent and they lived, but they weren't really looking to a bronze serpent. They were looking to the promise of God. And who is the central object of the promise of God? Jesus. So it's faith in Jesus just as much as the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. They had to believe. They didn't see it all the way and they didn't grasp it. But you know what? You and I have a promise of a new heavens and a new earth and we can't see that all the way or grasp it, can we? But it's just as real today as it will be the day that we step foot in it. Amen? You see how that works? And so we trust Him. We're saved by faith. So, to finish this up, the Old Testament saints were saved by faith. All right. I want to look at one more place and show you something because a lot of people teach that there are two peoples of God. There's the church and there's Israel. If you want to believe that, you go ahead. All right. Uh, there's the church and there's Israel. But what I want to show you is Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I lay my life down for my sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. They must come and we will all be one flock with one shepherd. Y'all remember that? Okay. How many of y'all know Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10? For you, it is by grace you have been... Uh, tell me, Joan. All right. You've been saved by grace through faith. It's not a, a, a not of works, lest any man should boast. It's a gift of God, right? Yep. For we have been, we are His workmanship, created unto good works in Christ Jesus. All right. Thank you. What does Ephesians two eleven say? Let's go look at that. Let's run over there really quick. Ephesians two eleven. Because a lot of people memorize Ephesians two eight nine and ten, but not a lot of people want to talk about Ephesians eleven uh, two eleven through twenty two. Okay, good. All right, let's look at it. Therefore, remember that you, formerly the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. All right, really quick. The Jews called us goy, dogs. All right, they still call Gentiles goy today, dogs. All right now, he said you 
who were formerly Gentiles. If I'm no longer a Gentile, what does that make me? A Jew. Huh? What? But uh, Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision which is performed in the flesh. So we're talking about two different types of circumcision. A circumcision of the heart and a circumcision of the flesh. All right? Which people are the true people of God? Is it the ones that are circumcised by the flesh? Abraham was circumcised in the flesh. But the problem is, is that Abraham believed God it was credited unto righteous before he was ever circumcised. He was a believer before he was ever circumcised. What about Esau? He was circumcised. Nope. But the child of promise, Isaac, Jacob. Yep. All right. So there's a difference in a circumcision. One is of the heart, one is of the flesh. Now look what he says here. Remember that you at one time were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God. So you were not a member of the commonwealth of Israel. All right. How many anybody here from Pennsylvania? Maine? All right. Those are commonwealths. What is a commonwealth? It's a state. What does it mean to say that you are a citizen of the commonwealth of Maine? You can vote in Maine, right? You can vote. You're a citizen. You're a citizen of that state. Well, look what it says. At that time, you were second, uh, separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. Well, what are the covenants of promise? The promise of eternal life, the, the law, uh, the covenant of David as being the king, the covenant of Abraham is going to inherit the land and all of the, the people, and by his seed all the nations of the world will be blessed. All those were promises, right? And what it's saying is because you were a Gentile, you were excluded from those promises and you were not a member of the commonwealth of Israel. Remember when Christ came? He only came to who? His sheep. But after He died on the cross and rose again, what happened? Where did Paul go? To the Gentiles. Because the Jews rejected Him. What did He do? He turned and went to the Gentiles. And now look what it says in verse 13. But now, in Christ, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the dividing wall. Now what he's talking about there is at the temple in Jerusalem, at that time if you were a Goy, if you were a Gentile, there was a wall and it was called the court of the Gentiles and you were not allowed to go beyond that wall and get closer into the temple. There was the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, and then that's when you entered into the temple proper. And it was only the men that went in there, you see? And it was only the Jewish men that went in there. And if you were a goy, you were not allowed within there. You weren't allowed in there. You were allowed into the outer court, but you were not allowed inside. And so what he says is, in Christ you were brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in order, so that in himself... He might make the two into one man. What is the one man? Jesus. He is the one man. And what do we call the body of Christ? What's the... The temple. The church. The church. So what is the church? 
It's that one man where those two groups were all joined together in the body of Christ. Well, why am I bringing that up? Because how many bodies hung on that cross to sanctify us? And who is He dying to save? All of His sheep from Adam to the last one that's going to believe. And their circumcision in the flesh was not the reason He went and died on the cross for them. But by dying on the cross, by being buried in the grave, by being raised again and ascended into heaven, sitting at the right hand of the Father, by sending His Spirit, by the Father and the Son sending the Spirit down here to the earth, and by the proclaiming of the gospel of Jesus Christ, God is pulling a people out to Himself from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, and they will be one body. Right? And so let's go back to the scope and efficacy. You see how you see why I'm making that so important? What was the view of Christ when He was hanging on the cross? To die for all of His people. And who are those people? All of those who receive Him. All of those who believe on Him, He gives them the right to become children of God. If you're in this room and you're a believer today, it's because He died on the cross to save you. He sent His Holy Spirit and He sent somebody to share the Gospel message with you. And the Spirit circumcised your heart and made you a new man. And so, you see why I bring that up? Because the body of Christ is all of His people. He's the head and we are the body. And that body includes Jews and that body includes Gentiles. One shepherd, one flock. And in the end, in the book of Revelation, if you read it, It says we will all be around the throne and there will be peoples from every tribe and every tongue and every nation worshiping Jesus Christ. Why? Because all the way back when Abraham was given the promise, this is what he said, through your seed, all of the nations will be blessed. Now, if you think that he's talking about Abraham's physical seed, You missed the point. Jesus was of the physical seed of Abraham. He was a son of David and a son of Judah. And a son of Jacob and a son of Abraham. He was of the physical seed of Abraham. But when he said seed, he didn't say seeds. He said one seed. And Paul is very clear to point that out to us in Galatians. The one seed of Abraham through which all of the nations of the world would be blessed is who? Jesus. So again, tonight we've learned, we, we, we're going to close with prayer, but we continue to discuss the scope and the efficacy of the work of Jesus on the cross. And not only that, I hope that you now realize through this that the Old Testament saints were saved by Jesus just as much as the New Testament saints. They were saved on credit. We're saved on debit. But all of us have to look to live. Amen? Father, thank you for this time we've had together. Thank you for this night. I do pray that this will uh, stir some hearts, get some people to thinking about what a beautiful plan of salvation you've uh, accomplished and, and what a beautiful gift it is for those of us who receive you and to those of us who believe you. I pray if there be a man or woman here tonight who has never trusted you, that you would stir their heart to know you. I pray for those who have trusted you, that you will continue to conform them to the image of your Son, Christ, so that the world might know you. In His name we pray. Amen. Amen.